The words to which I should like to call attention this evening are to be found in the book of Numbers, chapter 11, verses 4, 5, and 6. The book of Numbers, chapter 11, verses 4, 5, and 6. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manner before our eyes. I come back once more to a consideration of this extraordinary incident in the life and history of the children of Israel. You remember the context. God had brought them out of the captivity and the bondage of Egypt, had taken them through the Red Sea, had conquered Pharaoh and his hosts and had destroyed them, and thus rendered these people safe from their clutches. And here he was leading them onto the way, on the way to Canaan, the promised land, which was flowing with milk and honey. But here they are in a wilderness where nothing grows and uh, there was no provision. But God did an amazing thing. He provided food for them in the wilderness. He sent manna, bread from heaven. You remember the whole story concerning that. And here they are getting their supply of manna. Which, is more, which was more than sufficient to keep them alive and to give them health and strength. But suddenly they begin thus to lust and to desire flesh to eat. And they look back with longing eyes upon their former life in Egypt and praise it as if it had been marvelous and wonderful and speak with contempt about this manner which God had thus provided for them in his love and in his mercy. Now, I, I'm calling attention to it in order that we may look at it together and see in it a very terrible and very terrifying picture of what sin has done to the entire human race. Here's a picture, you see, of people in trouble, weeping, most unhappy, and crying out. Everything seems to have gone wrong. And what's it all due to? Well, it's all due to one thing only, and that is sin. We've been seeing that, and I'm calling attention to it for this reason. That as I see things, the main message of the gospel to this modern world can be put simply like this. The world is in terrible trouble. Everybody's recognizing that. And men and women are frantically trying to seek for some solution to the problem turning here and there, setting up commission after commission, meeting in international conferences. Never has the world been so busy in trying to solve its own problem, and yet it all leads to nothing. And the Bible tells us that it all of necessity leads to nothing, for this reason, that the world has not yet realized the cause of its ills. And it doesn't matter how busy you are and active in your treatment, 
If you're not treating the right disease, you're wasting your money and you're wasting your drugs. The first step must be accurate diagnosis. And the Bible tells us from beginning to end, it's the whole message, it's the first message of the gospel itself, that man is as he is individually and collectively because of this terrible thing called sin. And the Bible says that it's so terrible that nothing less than a new life and a new nature from God is adequate to deal with the situation. Very well then. Clearly the first thing we have to do is to understand the disease, sin. And why I'm calling attention to these three verses is that it does give us a very perfect picture and representation of sin and shows us what sin has done to men. No man ever becomes a Christian unless he sees himself as a Christian. Why should he believe in Christ if he doesn't see that he has a need of him? It is essential that we should have an understanding of sin and be convicted of sin and realize what a terrible thing it is and what it does to us. What is it? Well, we've seen it makes us creatures of lust and of desire. They fell a lusting. We've seen that it makes havoc of our minds. The thing to which we trust, our intellects, our ability, our understanding, it so perverts them and cripples them that actually they may become our enemies. It has a devastating effect upon the mind. And then we've also seen that it makes us victims of a lie. It makes us see ourselves in entirely wrong terms so that we're very sorry for ourselves and feel that if only we were given a chance, we'd be very good and very wonderful people. It's always somebody else or it's always the world or it's always circumstances. We are all right. Why should we be in the wilderness? And why should we be eating manna? Why don't we? Ah, poor me, how good and wonderful I am if only people were kind and good and decent to me. Always somebody else. The lie that we believe about ourselves and our circumstances and our conditions. That's what sin does to us. But we haven't finished. There is something about sin which is even worse than all that. There is another element in sin which is the most tragic of all. And it is to that particular aspect of sin that I want to direct attention this evening. What is it? Well, let me put it in this form. The final and the most tragic effect of sin upon men is that it leads to failure to realize the nature and the glory of the salvation that God has provided for us. Now, there's nothing worse than that. And that is the thing, of course, that is illustrated so perfectly in this uh, statement here, and especially in the phrase, this manner. I've been trying to express it during the last three Sunday evenings, and I'm trying to express it tonight. Listen again. The mixed multitude that was among them fell lasting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic 
But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Do you get it? Do you get it, I say? Do you get the note of contempt with which they refer to the manna? This manna. Always, ever, day by day, nothing but manner. There's manner before our eyes. Now, this is something which really is almost incredible, isn't it, that any people could speak like this of the manner. And yet these people did speak like this of the manner, with unutterable contempt and derision and scorn, indeed with loathing. Now, the, the biblical teaching is that that is the final effect of sin upon men. That it makes him regard with contempt God's most amazing action. God's perfect provision. God's final manifestation of his love and of his wisdom and of his power. That is Typical and characteristic of man in sin. That is, I say, the most devastating thing that even sin does to us. That by nature, as we are in sin and born into this world, we regard with contempt God's supreme action and the greatest manifestation of his love. What a terrible thing it is. Had you realized it, my friend? Had you realized that that is true of men as he is by nature, that that is his attitude to God's greatest action? Shall I be yet more personal? Had you realized that you, unless you're a Christian, are guilty of this very thing? Now then, in order that we may face that question, let me put it like this. There are many ways of expressing contempt. One way of expressing contempt of a person or of anything is the open way, the way that was adopted here by these children of Israel. They put it into words, and they put it into their faces, in their whole attitude and expression. It was their blatant and open, this manner. And how frequently is contempt shown to the things of God at the present time in that particular way? Have you heard the jokes against religion and the wireless? It's just an expression of this. The jokes against being godly and against holiness. The jokes not only on the wireless but in company. The way a man's made to feel uncomfortable in company if he becomes a Christian. That's just a way of expressing the contempt. Indeed, as you know, there are large numbers of people in the world tonight who regard Christianity with unutterable disdain. They regard it as something which is an insult to a man's intelligence. Christianity, they say. Are you still interested in that? My word, how outmoded you are. Surely, you ought to realize you're living in 1957, not in 1857 or previous centuries. 
My dear sir, what about science? What about knowledge? What about all the advances? Where are you? Where are you living? What, you're not seriously suggesting that I ought to read a Bible? That's the modern men, isn't it? You're not seriously suggesting I should sit in a church and listen to a, a message from the gospel and preaching. My dear sir, my grandfather perhaps did that sort of thing, but I, what are you talking about? Don't you know where you are? Haven't you heard it? It's simply dismissed with contempt. The bright young things, the sophisticated people, of course, they're not interested. This has long since been left behind. It belongs to the infancy of the human race. It's beneath contempt. And as I say, they really do regard it as an insult to their intelligence uh, to be asked even to consider it at all. That's the common way, the open way. But of course, that isn't the only way of expressing contempt. Sometimes the most eloquent way of expressing contempt is just to say nothing. You don't let yourself go, as it were, and produce your expletives and denounce it and spit upon it. You just turn away from it with supreme contempt. You haven't said a word. Just bitter, biting silence and sarcasm. The thing is so contemptible that you're not even going to waste your breath upon it. You just go on as if you hadn't heard a word, as if the thing had never existed. And you see, there are millions of people who are taking that attitude. Let me say this for the first group. They do it and advise it. There is a sense in which this second group is much more terrible. And you see, this is the group that contains some of the most respectable people in this country tonight. The people who never get drunk. Wouldn't dream of doing so. They're living very respectably in some kind of suburbia. Very good people, very moral people. Very interested in good causes. But they regard this Bible, this Christianity, with a silent contempt. There are some very distinguished people belonging to this group. And they're praised by the world because of their idealism and so on. But their attitude towards this, I say, is one of utter contempt. They've never said a violent word against it. Of course they haven't. They just think that they can weather it by ignoring it completely. There are thousands of people, millions of people, I say, living highly respectable lives as if the Son of God had never come into this world at all and none of these things had ever happened. Oh, yes, and there's still another way in which we can show contempt. And that is by showing a very active preference for other things instead of this. Now, I read that portion out of the 14th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke at the beginning because, you see, that brings this particular point out so clearly. Here is a king who makes a great feast. He'd sent out his invitations and the people had accepted the invitations. Well, then uh, the time came when the feast was actually to be held. Uh, so the king sent out his servant to let the people know whom he'd invited and who had accepted the invitation. 
that all things were now ready. Would they come at once uh, to the feast? And you remember what happened. They all, with one consent, began to make excuse. The first sent a message and said, Now I've bought a plot of ground, and of course this is very important. I must go and see it and inspect it. Please have me excused. The second said, I've bought some oxen, and I must go and have a look at them again. Please have me excused. The third said, I've married and I cannot come. But of course what they were really doing was to show their preference, you see. And they were showing what they thought of the king and of his feast. It was all right to accept his invitation as long as there wasn't something else. You can't insult anybody more than by just doing that. You promise them, yes, I'll come and spend that evening with you. And then uh, when the day comes, you phone or you send a telegram to say, sorry, can't come. Why? Ah, you've met somebody more interesting. You can do nothing which is more contemptuous to a person than that. That's what these people did. Ah, yes, they'd go to the feast. Ah, but now something more important has come in. Oxen, bit of land, marrying a wife. So they can't come. Now, let me put this then in the form of a principle. You see, it, you don't need of necessity to have to stand up and to blast the gospel and to blaspheme it and to swear about it and to make jokes about it and make fun of it in public uh, to be guilty of contempt with respect to it. Either to ignore it completely or deliberately to put something else before it and in its place when you've been offered this and have been interested in it. That is, I say, to show contempt to the gospel quite as definitely as the more open and violent and blatant form of doing so. Very well then, my friends, I take it we're all listening for ourselves at this moment. Here it is, the invitation has come. What have we done about it? Now, man in sin has always shown this contempt for it. It's the whole story of the Bible. Cain was probably the first to do it. No doubt, you see, he'd had the same instruction as his brother Abel as to the kind of offering that was to be given to God. But he ignored it, and he did what he thought, thereby showing his contempt for God's way. Oh, these children of Israel. Here they are doing it here, you see, this manner. Oh, but it wasn't the only time they did it. Read their miserable story. And this is what you'll find as they went along. If they met a nation that had another God, they'd at once leave God and take up this other God. It may have been a God made of wood or of stone or of gold or of silver. It may have been some sort of an idol. It didn't matter. They'd believe in any God, the moon or the sun or the stars. They'd, at the slightest provocation, they'd turn their backs on God and worship anybody or anything. Oh, the contempt they've displayed in their history to Almighty God. And when you come to the New Testament, you get exactly the same thing. God called a man whose name was John, the son of Zechariah, John the Baptist, the flaming prophet, and he spoke in the power of the Spirit. But what did they say about him? They said, this man is a devil. That was the contempt they showed him. I'm hoping in a moment to show you the contempt with which they treated the Son of God himself. That's the record of the four Gospels. 
But then go on and consider the contempt which they show towards the apostles. Who are these men, they said, these ignorant and unlettered men? Who are they to speak? What right have they to address us? Who are they? They were dismissed with contempt because they were ordinary and unlettered men. The mighty apostle Paul arrives in the city of Athens. This mighty brain, this amazing, astounding man, one of the greatest men, if not the greatest men that the world has ever seen, a giant in every respect and in every fiber of his being. He arrives and he begins to speak in Athens. And do you remember the remark? What will this babbler say? Contempt. And then after he delivered his great address on Mars Hill, this is what I read at the end in the 17th chapter of Acts. Some mocked. They made fun of him. They joked about him. Oh, the smart set, of course, the clever people, the philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans, these people who spent their time in arguments and disputations and what was the latest and what was the newest. And here they are, and here's a man who talks about someone crucified on a tree who was nothing but a carpenter. Well, this, they said, really is going a little bit too far. We came and listened to him thinking that at any rate he had got some sort of a philosophy, but it's this, is it? They mocked him, this babbler. It's the same old contempt, you see, this manner. And so it has proved to be throughout the centuries when God has raised his prophets in the Christian era. Ah, so often they've been subjected to the same treatment. Read the persecutions that God's men have had to endure in every age and generation. Look at those people in Florence turning against Savonarola, that mighty orator and man of God with his holy flaming passion for righteousness and truth. Look how they turned on him and snarled at him and contemptuously turned against him. It's the long story, alas, it's the record of the human race running down the centuries. Man in sin and man by nature has always shown this contempt for God and, and some of God's most glorious and most wonderful actions towards mankind. Well, that brings me to my great principle tonight. What is it that man regards with contempt? What is it? Well, here it is on this occasion, and it's all here in germ, everything that the Bible has got to say on this subject, it's all here in its essence. The thing about which they're speaking with such unutterable contempt is the manner. This manner. Well, what's manner? Is it a weed? Is it something common and ordinary that's growing all over the place and you can't get away from it? Some kind of noxious weed that though you've put on all the things that kill weeds, you still can't keep it down. Something that's so common that you are always seeing it. Is that what they're scoffing at? Is that the thing to which they're displaying their contempt? This manner? Is it the ordinary staple food of mankind? Is it as common as bread? 
Is it as common as water? What is it? This manner? This contemptible thing? What is this? Well, you know the answer, don't you? The manner was a miracle. The manna was bread sent from heaven. Manna didn't grow naturally. Manna was not some kind of indigenous product in that land. God sent the manna six days of the week from heaven. By a miracle. A miracle repeated six days of every week. There it was. God acting in his almightiness, in his unusual way. Not using the ordinary laws of nature, but doing something apart from them, above them, supernatural, supranatural. The manifestation of God the creator before their very eyes. Marvel, miracle, extraordinary, wonderful. And that's how they speak of it. This manner. It was not only a manifestation of God's miraculous, almighty, and illimitable power. It was a wonderful manifestation of his love, and of his kindness, of his compassion, and of his solicitude for them, and his providential care of them. That's what it was, wasn't it? God looked in pity upon them and sent it there for their provision in order that they might have the supply and be happy and above all that they might know him better than they'd ever known him before. He comes down as a father as it were and provides for his suffering and his needy children. Oh, what a manifestation not only of power but of love and of kindness and of mercy and of compassion. But that they regard with utter contempt, this manner. And look back with longing to fish, of which the sea is full, and melons and leeks and garlic and onions found in profusion in those lands. Oh, my dear friend, that's the thing which mankind in sin regards with contempt. The miracle of God, the marvel of God, the glory of God, the almightiness of God, the compassion of God. Ah, oh, but let us come to the New Testament. Let's look at it in terms of Christianity. Doesn't mankind still do the same thing? Well, let's look at the biblical record. Let me give you some examples and illustrations from the New Testament itself as to the kind of reception that Christianity has always had in this world. Here it is at the very beginning. The whole thing was regarded with unutterable contempt. The Apostle Paul puts it in writing to the Corinthians in the first epistle, the second chapter, the 14th verse, in these words, the natural man, that's to say, man as he is left to himself without God doing anything to him, a natural man with all his cleverness and all his ability and all his worldly wisdom and all his cuteness and all his understanding, the natural man 
receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are foolishness unto him. Foolishness. Had you thought that uh, to regard uh, the Christian gospel with contempt is the hallmark of modernity? Had you said, ah, I'm a 20th century man, of course, everybody in the past, they were so ignorant, they believed that sort of stuff. Uh, but, uh, of course, to me, it's folly, foolishness and folly. My dear friend, they said that 2,000 years ago, you know, when it first was preached. You're not quite as up to date as you thought you were. You're just repeating what mankind has always done and has always said. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Contempt won't listen to them. Ah, but I mustn't stop at generalities. I must come down to the particulars. If you really want to see this thing, go and read your four Gospels, and there it is. If ever a person has met with contempt in this world, it was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen to the evidence. Isn't it almost incredible that men and women should have treated him as they did and should have said about him the things they said, but they did? At the very beginning they said, Can any good come out of Nazareth? Listen to them as they go on. Who is this fellow? That's got a modern sound about it too, isn't it? This fellow. Not quite, is he? This fellow. This outsider. Who is this carpenter, this artisan? Who sets himself up as a teacher and is addressing us and telling us what we ought to do and what we ought not to do? How hath this man learning, having never learned? Do you hear the cheers? Marvelous. Now that, that was good. That was a clever remark, wasn't it? This fellow. What does a man like this know? You see, they're talking about the Son of God when they say a thing like that. This manner, this fellow. And then uh, listen to them and watch them as they question him. And how clever again, I say, they thought they were. They probably concocted the questions before they went to him. They say, well now, let's just go and listen to him. And then when question time comes at the end... We'll put a question to him now. They say, what shall we really ask him in order to box him completely? Now, uh, here it is, and they've got the trick question. And so they go and they uh, pretend to be listening with great politeness to him. And then at the end they say, now, very good, very fine, but uh, we just got one question. Uh, should we pay tribute to Caesar or not? And you see, whatever he says, in a sense, it's going to be wrong. They're going to catch him. If he says that they shouldn't, they'd report him to the Roman officials for uh, preaching disaffection and rebellion. 
If he says, yes, you should pay, they'd report him to the Jews and say he's not a nationalist, he's letting us down. So whatever he says must be wrong. Brilliant. That's the way you see to deal with him. He's a contemptuous person who must be trapped and got rid of. And then the trick question about the woman and the seven husbands. You remember it all, don't you? The questions and the attempts to trap him and to ridicule him. Even worse than that, we read at the end of the 8th chapter of the Gospel, according to St. John, that they took up stones and threw them at him. Indeed, they went further than that. They looked into his face and they said, Thou hast a devil! Calling yourself Son of God, you're a blasphemer. You've got a devil! They dismissed him. They said, This man is dangerous. Well, isn't it all summed up in this He was despised and rejected of men. They were so bitter in their contempt with respect to him that they even gathered together and plotted. People who hated one another, Sadducees became friendly with Pharisees, joined the Herodians together, and there they are, the scribes with them. They're all together. He must be got rid of. All are agreed that he's so contemptible and contemptuous, they must get rid of him. And so they brought it about, you remember? He was arrested and tried. And then they go on still showing their contempt. They make a crown of thorns. They say, you've claimed to be a king. Very well, we'll crown you. So they got him, made a crown of thorns, and they pressed it on his head, and blood came out. And they said, hail, king of the Jews, with mockery and contempt. And then, you see, they crucified him. And there he is nailed to a tree. Suffering agonies, not only physical, but suffering at this sin, this vileness, this blindness, this foulness. And as he's hanging there, helpless and suffering such agonies, they walk past, you remember, wagging their heads and mocking and jeering him and saying, If thou be the Son of God, come down, save thyself, give proof of it. And it wasn't only the common people that did that. The rulers and the scribes did it. They mocked him. They jeered at him. They taunted him even as he was dying in agony on the tree. It's the sort of thing that people don't do, you know, with an ordinary criminal. They would, the kind of humanity in men would keep him from doing that. But they did it to this person. They mocked and jeered and taunted. They treated him with contempt. Even the, this manner, this fellow... Off with him! They chose a murderer, a thief, and a robber. They chose Barabbas rather than this man. That's the contempt they heaped upon him. What's it all mean? Oh, you see, it's just this same principle still. It's still the failure to appreciate the miracle. Manner. Not interested in miracles. The hatred of the manner makes them lose sight of the miracles. It's exactly the same in the case of our Lord. 
They looked at him, you see, and saw nothing but a carpenter, an artisan, and ordinary men. They never saw the miracle. They never saw when they looked at him the miracle of the incarnation, the miracle of the virgin birth. They had no conception that as they looked at him, there were two natures in him. A man, certainly, but God also. They couldn't see it. The most amazing miracle of all time. The only time it's ever happened. But it happened there. This unique event in Bethlehem. God, the eternal Son, came down. Came down from earth, from heaven to earth to dwell. Entered into the virgin's womb. Took unto him human nature. God and man. The miracle of the divine man. The Theanthropos. They treated it with contempt. They never saw it. And isn't it still the same? There are people who only use his name as an oath. They never stopped and looked at him and said, Is this right? Is this true? Is this a fact? That nearly 2,000 years ago, this tremendous thing happened. The heavens were opened, and down came the sun. God hath visited and redeemed his people. They've never seen it. They just say, oh Christ, leave me alone. That's the thing at which they show their contempt. Oh, let me use the words of the Apostle Paul again. Talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, whom the princes of this world did not know. Far had they known him, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They were princes and he was a commoner, an outcast, a fellow, a carpenter, and they didn't receive him and have nothing to do with him. And indeed they sent him away and they crucified him. Had they known him, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But they didn't know him. As these people didn't realize the wonder and the glory and the miracle and the marvel and the strangeness of the manner and which, which would have led them on to say, well, whatever the cucumbers and the leeks and the melons and all the rest of it may have represented, this is God. Bread from heaven will live on this forever and forever. No, no, they didn't see it, you see. Consumed by lust, they missed the miracle. And so it was with the Son of God. They missed the miracle and the marvel and the glory. They didn't know him. And it is because mankind doesn't know him tonight that they're not interested in him. They don't read the Bible about him. They don't read books about him. They don't seek him in prayer. They don't listen to the preaching of him and his gospel. They leave him unconsidered. They pass by as if he'd never lived. They go on as if he'd never appeared. Or else they dismiss him with an expletive, using his own name as the expletive. Oh, but he doesn't stop at his person. 
They do exactly the same thing with his death and its meaning. Listen to the Apostle Paul putting it again. He says, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews. A stumbling block. And to the Greeks, foolishness. The cross of Christ. The death of Christ. The Jews hated it. It was a stumbling block to them. They were infuriated by it. Our Messiah, they said, dying in weakness upon a cross. The Messiah we've looked forward to for centuries. Coming as a carpenter. Not leading a great army. Not dismissing the Romans from our land. And setting himself up as a king. And ruling over the whole world. Why, they said, this thing is impossible. Don't tell us about it. They hated it. The offense of the cross. Stumbling block, foolishness, oh, to the superior, sophisticated Greek. There was nothing that was so contemptible and so foolish as to say that what was to save the world was the death of a carpenter upon a tree in a land like Palestine. It was a philosopher who was to save the world, someone even greater than Plato or Socrates and the rest, who would come and propound his marvelous philosophy and teach it, and people would say, now this is staggering. This is the thing for which we've been waiting. But a death upon a cross, a cross, foolishness. And my dear friends, alas, it's still the same. There are people ready to admire Jesus of Nazareth. They are ready to admire the Sermon on the Mount and many aspects of his teaching. They say if it could only be applied, the problem in South Africa would end. The problem in the League of Nations would end. This is what we want, this application. But if you mention the blood of Christ to them, they'll show you their teeth. Blood of Christ, they say. This gospel of blood, this theology of blood, this wallowing in blood. I think I told you once of how I was called into a discussion between a Christian and a professional man who were arguing about Christianity. And this is the first thing I heard the professional men saying, the non-Christian. He said, you know, I'm interested in Christianity. I believe it's the finest morals the world has ever known. And I'm ready to try to practice it and to get others to do it. But he said, my friend here, you know, he's got some kind of blood and thunder gospel that he talks about. This blood he talks about. And he regarded it with contempt and he reviled it and he dismissed it with unutterable scorn. The shed blood of the Son of God. The blood of the one who is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the whole world. The blood without which and without the shedding of which there is no remission of sins. For God hath set him forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood. It's God's way of saving men. If that blood had not been shed, not one of us would be forgiven. We'd all be consigned to perdition and to hell. The blood of the Son of God, the most amazing manifestation of God's love and mercy and compassion, that he spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all to the death of the cross 
and the spear being thrust in and the blood and the water coming out. The thing that saves us is the thing that they regard with supreme contempt. They'll talk about following his example, carrying out his teaching, admiring his method, but the blood, this manner, this blood, they say. They say that the idea that one died for all is immoral, and their philosophy will not allow them to accept it. They say that to say that God is a God of wrath and that he must punish sin makes God immoral. And so they attack the atonement. The blood is the most offensive message of the cross. The offense of the cross. Have you ever stumbled at the cross and at the blood? If you have, you've just been repeating the action of the children of Israel and you're saying in modern terms this manner. And likewise, they do it with the resurrection, don't they? You see, the first clever people wouldn't believe it, so Paul has to ask a question. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Why? It was, and they dismissed it. And when Paul preached Jesus and the resurrection in Athens, they said he seems to be the setter forth of strange gods because he preached Jesus and the resurrection. Men still say, you know, that rarely... If you've got scientific knowledge and understanding, you can't believe in the literal, physical resurrection of his body. You believe in the perpetuation of his influence, but not the literal rising. Things like that don't happen. Therefore, it hasn't happened and it's dismissed as a bit of folklore or ancient magic contempt. And likewise with the doctrine of the rebirth and of regeneration, and that we must be born again. Oh, mankind thinks that the best joke that was ever cracked was the old joke of Nicodemus, who, hearing about this for the first time, said, What? Can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? That's the way to ridicule and to treat with contempt the doctrine of the rebirth and of regeneration. But oh, let me finish. Do not men and women treat the whole of the Christian life in the same way? Art thou weary, art thou languid, art thou sore distressed? Come to me, saith one, and coming, be at rest. And yet he's dismissed with contempt. The world that is so restless and crying for peace dismisses him. They dismiss the rest that he offers and the peace and the joy and the equanimity and the calmness, the loss of the fear of death and the grave. It's all dismissed with contempt. And likewise, you see, they treat with contempt the Christian life. What is the Christian life? Well, it's a call to a life of holiness. A life of sanctification. A life of following Christ and living the Sermon on the Mount. What do they say about it? Narrow, they say. Too narrow. Impossible. And they reject it with contempt and with scorn. And what do they choose in preference? 
What are the modern counterparts of melons and leeks and garlics and onions and plots of ground and oxen and wives and so on? Well, read your newspapers and there you'll see it dancing all night. Playing the fool with the world as it is today. Drinking. Eating. Giving rein to your lusts and your passions. That's what they choose in preference. And they boast of it. They dismiss this as narrow. This manner. And they laud the honor and praise it. And say how marvelous and how wonderful it is. They prefer the broad way to the narrow way that leadeth unto life. They treat with contempt the companionship of the saints. The finest and the best men that this world has ever seen. They reject and spurn the offer of fellowship and companionship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. For he offers to be with you in this life, to enter into you, to be your companion unseen, to strengthen you, to deliver you, to empower you, to comfort you. It's all rejected and refused. And modern men and women who soon will be rotting in graves are chosen in preference. And then finally, the amazing offer that he gives us of future glory, of being with him, of seeing him as he is, of spending eternity with him, free from sorrow and sighing and shame and war and bitterness, the glory of heaven. What do they say about it? Isn't it this? Pie in the sky. How funny. How marvelously funny. How pie in the sky. And they're talking about spending eternity in the presence of God. This manner. Oh, my dear friend, what is your attitude towards this gospel? How have you treated it? What are you doing about it? I've shown you that not to look at it is to treat it with contempt. That to put anything else before it is to treat it with contempt. Quite as much as to speak openly against it and to blaspheme it and violently reject it. Passive resistance is as much resistance as active resistance. I ask you the most solemn question you'll ever have to hear. What is your attitude to this? God forbid. 
that it should be the attitude of those children of Israel of old to the manna. God hath visited and redeemed his people. God so loved the world that he gave, he has given his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. My dear friend, if you believe that, if you know it, it'll be the biggest thing in your life, the most wonderful thing of all. You'll say, Christ, the Son of God, God and men, and he's died for me to save me from sin and self and lead me to his own way of life and eventually to heaven and to glory. And if you see it, you will count everything else as but dung and refuse and filthy rags and loss. And you leave all and follow him. Have you seen it? What's your attitude to him? Is it contempt? If you see tonight that it has been until this evening, I pray you, see the enormity of it. And here and now go to him and confess it and acknowledge it and ask him to receive you. And though you've treated him with such contempt and derision for so long, he will not refuse you. He will not reject you. He will receive you and give you everlasting life. Amen.